Welcome to the London Horror Movie Club, a monthly film club where I share the brilliant, bizarre, and beloved of London's horror films. I'm Lauren Barnett. Hi everyone, it's June, and that means we're moving into the 1990s to watch the 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula. You can find this film on Amazon Prime, Apple, Google Play, it's even on Netflix. It's basically everywhere because it was up for a few Academy Awards and it has a very impressive cast of characters. Bram Stoker's Dracula is a reimagining of the original novel Dracula by, as you can tell, Bram Stoker, where Englishman John Harker and his fiancée Mina Murray become entangled with an ancient powerful vampire whose lost love resembles Mina. The basic plot is taken from Stoker's novel, but don't let the title fool you. The driving force of this film is a love triangle that has nothing to do with the original Dracula story. That being said, it has a great set of film credentials. It's directed by Francis Ford Coppola, so you know it's going to be beautiful, rich colors, fantastic sets, and very high budget. It's starring Oscar winners Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins as Dracula and Van Helsing, respectively. And it has Academy Award nominee Winona Ryder, she's Mina, Keena Reeves plays John Harker. You may have very strong opinions about these two actors, I know they can be pretty divisive, but they, they, they do what they do, so if you know them, that's, that is the roles they're doing. Um, and the film itself actually won three Academy Awards. It won Best Costume, and the costumes are incredible. It also won Best Sound Editing and Best Makeup, and I think that the, the Best Makeup Award is one that's really well-deserved. I'll go into that a little bit later, but but particularly for Gary Oldman's Dracula, it's a fantastic version of it. And as, as reason enough, honestly, to see the film is the way Dracula transforms as, it, as he does actually in the book. And I think that you can tell from the awards, this is a visually spectacular film. The sounds, the colors, the costuming, the vivid cinematography. It's one of those films that's, and, and I, I know this is dramatic, but glorious to behold. And it really is. It's so beautiful. It's, it is moving artwork. And it, it's great fun in that respect to watch, even if you're not somebody who usually watches horror movies. Or it's great if you're one of those people who loves horror movies, but has good friends, family, whatever, who don't enjoy horror movies. It's really easy to draw them in on this. Now, in addition to, to all of these wonderful things and the award-winning beauty, I suppose, uh, it is a genuinely clever horror film. It has, it has some great scary moments and it's very sort of self-reflexive. Um, it, it, it spends a lot of time being very aware that it's a movie. It also spends a lot of time being very aware of the Dracula story and how it's been told basically for a century since it was written. So it, it's a, a film for somebody who... who probably really likes Dracula stories, really likes cinema, really likes horror films. You'll get a lot out of it in that respect. So one of the things that I think is great about it as a horror film is it does what horror does best. It, it, it is very visually shocking and horrific and has a lot to it. Red is a visual theme throughout the film, so you're not short on blood and gore if that's what you like in a horror film, but it's drawn in a really clever and artistic way. It ties in with the costuming, it ties up with makeup, it ties into sex, so you get that very... Uh, something that was actually incredibly popular in the 1970s, that, that really heightened tension between sexuality and the sexual sort of tension and 
fear and this the fact that both of those rely on anxiety so it heightens your emotions and that sort of hair standing on end thing it does very well in in certain parts and it builds really slowly and gradually to very visually exciting moments so you have you know you can you have films that can can take the sex thing too far in one direction or the fear plus sex thing too far and this is a really perfect balance it it gets you sort of excited and ready for anything really and then you're 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 frightened or you're you're surprised and it it works on the way your emotions work in your body which is why I think I call it a a clever horror film it sort of is trying to get certain reactions from you and it's trying to surprise you and in some really great ways it does and in some really great ways it, it draws you into the story you get really into and and this I think is Gary Oldman He's, he's, I can say nothing bad about him in general as an actor, so I'm a huge fan. But he, he is particularly great in this film because you, you want to get on the side of Dracula and he is not making any moral cause for what he does. He is absolutely in every way the sort of pinnacle of pure evil that Bram Stoker writes. And yet you, you're, you're all for him. He has this weird love story, but if you think about it too hard, it's actually also really cruel. And he even says in the film, you know, it's it's a really cruel thing that he's doing to this woman he loves, that he would turn her into a vampire is, is a horrific, lonely, disgraceful life. And he he's totally open about it. And yet you sort of go, yeah, do it, kill her, but leave her in this weird damn situation. Uh, sorry, I've gotten a bit of a t- tangent there. Uh, but I think what I'm trying to say is that it, it draws you in in a lot of different ways, not just in the fear way. And I think that's some of the best horror films do that. They make you excited about the characters. And yes, you get scared. And yes, it's horrific. But you're you're invested hugely in the film anyway. Um, another really great thing about the way this is a horror film, I guess, is that the way it plays on madness and insanity and the insane asylum scenes, you you see that sort of edge of decency in some of Renfeld's scenes um, where Dracula's sort of possessing this man or controlling him. And, and so you see that, that edge of humanity. And that's a really interesting thing that horror can do. It shows you that sort of the, the, the places and spaces where you push beyond being the sort of normal, decent human being we are in normal, everyday life. And, and that sort of flittering edge of insanity. Those mo- I don't know if other people have these, but you have, I have these moments in life where you're exhausted or you're, you're tired or you're frustrated or whatever. And you just, you can see that you could so easily tip beyond that veil. You could you could respond in a way that makes complete sense in the moment and externally would be completely horrific or shocking or inappropriate. And it's that little fine line that it plays with really well in this ma- the, the sort of madness and sanity subplot of this. And you see that that also in a totally different way in the insanity scenes with the horror and brutality of the way these patients are treated. It's very honest to the psychiatric treatment at the time of Bram Stoker's novel. Think of um, uh, Bedlam, that's what it's called. Think of Bedlam Asylum, Beth Elm Hospital. That's, that is very much in the same vein. The treatment there has inspired a lot of other horror movies because it's pretty particularly brutal. And yet you see that, that on the one hand, you have this man who's sort of slowly being driven to, to horrible things because of really faith and a belief in something. And on the other hand, you have the doctors who believe in the system, 
that is doing horrible things to these patients in order to cure them. And so you get both sides of this coin of, of brutality and of cruelty and of human cruelty. And that's horrific in such a cool and interesting way because it's not just about shocking you for a moment. It's not just about scaring or tantalizing you in the way the rest of the film is. It's about the fact that horror is actually really a part of our life, our daily lives, the things we believe in and the things we will do for things we believe in, science or religion or whatever, power. We are capable of doing really terrible things and thinking we're doing good. And that's, that's amazing. I, I really, I, I think it's not talked about as much in, in, various discussions about Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I think it's one of the amazing things about this horror film is that that you don't talk about it, that people are so willing to accept the reality and the rationality behind these two sides of horror that are going on surrounding this this poor man. It's amazing. I mean, it's, sorry, I, go into it. I, I won't go too far into this. But go into it looking for these scenes because I think they're they're underrated as very real, true, creeping horror of our daily lives great, great to engage with. And it's really interesting. And I, as you can tell, I could talk about that for hours. Um, the other thing that, that works well in this sort of horror film tradition is it has a great sense of mystery. I fell in love with horror films um, through books. I fell in love with horror films by reading Goosebumps. I don't know if anyone knows R.L. Stein's Goosebumps. Huge fan when I was a kid. I had all of them. And there, there was an aspect of mystery to it. You were trying to like uncode or figure out how these bad things were happening or how they'd get out of it. It was like a mystery. And there's a sense of that to this film of you, there's, how do I explain this? It, there's, there's a way of trying to figure out how this is all going to come together and untangle. How will these people be able to save them? How will Van Helsing be able to figure it out? And it, it's like a mystery novel. You come at it kind of sideways, but it, it, it really engages you in a different way. And it, it reminds me of very old fashioned horror and old school horror, the sort of, even going back to Universal Studios, that has that sort of noir mystery feel to a horror film. So that that's fantastic. Uh, and of course, I'm gonna, <laughs> the other great thing it has is I, I'm gonna draw out is that Oldman transforms into a werewolf at one point. The, the magnificent visual effects of this make that one of my favorite moments is that you have Dracula turning into a werewolf. And I know I talked about that in another podcast to do with another film, but in, in this film in particular, it's really very clever because you, you, you can see that there's that sort of natural relationship between the vampire and the werewolf in the scene. And it's, the, the visuals are surprising and fantastic. And, and it is scary and it's, and it's very animal. And it's great. And that, that makes it one of my sort of favorite, let's say, shock horrors. Uh, moments in a film that's largely about building horror slowly that transformation does take your breath away and it's just fantastic so you, so you get all these different types of horror these different interesting ideas about horror but it's also and of course it is because it's on the London Horror Film Podcast it's a London film everyone thinks of Whitby when they talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula and Bram Stoker's Dracula sorry um and and I I completely respect that. It was a, a huge inspiration. The library was a big part of Bram Stoker's research, but he wrote most of Dracula in London, and Dracula spends more time in London in the book than anywhere else in England. And so London is a huge part of this story from the get-go. In fact, a huge part of the original book is the fear of immigration into large cities, and, and in England, that was largely in London. And so London is an important part of the Dracula story and of why Dracula is threatening an outsider coming into London trying to masquerade as a posh man is a huge part of the story. 
Coppola doesn't go into that as much, but he makes the most of London. And, and he does have this great moment where he's acknowledging that part of the book. Early on in the film, Dracula has John Harker at his castle. Um, and o Oldman at this point is in this really amazing sort of old craggy man makeup. I mentioned this briefly at the start, but it's it's something that's very true in the book is that Dracula isn't attractive in in the novel and he's not supposed to be he's he's got power and there's an attraction to that but he's physically really you know he's he's <laughs> he's older he's crumpled he's wrinkled he's ragged he's lived through time he he has a sort of sense of the 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 eternal in in his face he's very much old and falling apart and pale and weakened and you you have this in that scene. You have a very unappealing, unattractive, beautifully made up, very much sense of the unreal Dracula with this very handsome, clean-cut Keanu Reeves, very British character. And, and the way those two play off each other in these early castle scenes shows that sort of real thread of Dracula. And then there's the, the camera sort of pulls back and they're talking about the places Dracula's buying in London. And what John Harker is saying is mirrored visually. He's talking about how Dracula is sort of basically scattering himself around London, which is literally what he ends up doing. And Dracula's shadow comes alive behind him, behind Oldman, and is creeping across London. It is a shadow cast across London. And that amazing moment is the central sort of fear of the book, which Coppola does really beautifully, but it also foreshadows how he's going to use London to do what he wants. His will's going to twist the city. And that is amazing throughout the rest of the film. I, I wish the film followed up more on that, that theme because I think it's really important and interesting to the Dracula story. Instead, Dracula focuses on Mina's relationship, but he twists the city to get him and Mina together. There's a great scene where he's um, on Upper Regent Street. And this is, this is historically accurate, which is great. He's sees Mina on the street and they, they sort of do this weird back and forth chess thing and they both wind up at the Royal Polytechnic Institute on Upper Regent Street and that is where the Lumiere brothers first exhibited this new daring technology of film. It actually happened 1896 and that experience, the, the Lumiere brothers' display of film, is the background for the first time Dracula and Mina really come together. And he's sort of, he's drawn her in in the way film draws people in. It's visual, you see glances and looks and they draw into each other. And a movie is playing in the background when he sort of has this first interesting, almost seduction scene of Mina. It's a very self-aware film. It's saying a lot about cinema, but it's taking it from a very real moment in London's history. This is about something that's happening in London at that time and how it, he, he being Dracula, can use the city of these new, exciting, changing things to change Mina's life, to change his history, to alter the way his story's being told. And it's these moments within London, you know, it's, it's London back rooms, there's the London Zoo, which plays an important part of it, the, the, the shots of the streets of London, the way London streets aren't American, they're not grid-based, they're not Parisian, they're, they're windy. Everything about the city can be used to draw Mina to him and draw out the things Dracula wants most. And the way he works with the city is beautiful. I mean, what other word can I use for it? It's it's amazing. It makes you want to, it makes you want to be seduced by London itself. Which, if you aren't already, it's it's a very easy city to to either lose yourself to or to get seduced by. And it, 
it works so well with this sense of malevolence. And I think it's why, I think something in this is why London makes great horror. And I think Coppola gets it, and I think it's in this film, and I wish I could express it properly. But the great thing about me not being able to express it properly is you need to see the film. Go see it. It's, you, you, you'll get it. You'll have that moment, and if you do, send me an email because it's awesome. I, it's, it's, it's a great experience. And it's one that, that I think we, we so rarely get anymore in horror films. But when we do, it reminds us the magic of horror when everything is coming together to make something happen. And it's, it's magic. It's movie magic. Um, the other, of course, side of it, which I touched on briefly, is that the reality of the brutality of the London Asylum. Um, Bedlam, again, is the sort of really well-known one. It helped define not only the, the question of institutional mental health care, but also London, London's history, and the sort of horrible things that happened in Bedlam add to the Victorian London image we have. You get that great atmosphere of Victorian London. It's done very carefully and well. You have street cellars, lush restaurants, gas lighting. It's all those little details. It, it adds a richness to it and a wealth to it and a seduction to it, but it also feels very Victorian London, and it's the kind of London where you would have Jack the Ripper and where you would have... Dracula. So you have a very well-tied-up, well-represented London that then is also being manipulated in this great and interesting way. And that makes it not only a great horror movie, but a great London horror movie. Now, I want to finish by saying I know this isn't necessarily a film that's unpopular. It was very popular when it first came out. Probably a lot of you have seen it. I think a lot of people dismiss the sort of horror credentials of it because it is a very romantic film. It, it draws a lot more on the visual in a different way than traditional horror films do. But I encourage you, if you, if you watched it once and you thought, oh, this is a bit fluffy, ha having had a listen to this, go back in there and watch it again. Because I, I think that we as a culture in the West, really, not, not necessarily in the East, I think Japan does as well, um, we have a tendency to think of horror as B-movies and, and everything that goes with it. And sometimes it's just what you love. I mean, the 1980s last podcast, Life Force, is, it's not a B-movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it sort of became one. It, it plays on that 80s aesthetic. And we love that in our horror films. And don't get me wrong, I love that in some horror films. But we also have this really rich history of very beautiful, very subtle, very clever horror films that are horrific because of what it says about people, the horrible, horrible nature of people. And those horror films are just as valuable, just as fascinating, just as interesting. They're very often just as celebrated. I mean, you think of something like um, Silence of the Lambs. They're really amazing horror films for different reasons. And I, I if you... If you're willing and if you're open and if you can can sort of give this another try, I think this deserves more on the canon of horror films. Yes, it's a great film. Yes, it's a pretty film. Yes, it's a Francis Ford Coppola film. It's a heck of a lot better than the Frankenstein that he tried to do. Uh, but it's also a really cool horror film. There's something here for everyone. There's something about the horror film that is honest and real and that you sort of, you go... Yeah, horror is more than just something that scares us. It's a part of our lives. And I love it. And that is, that is enough for me. That's my huge pitch. Give it a try. I really hope you like it. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the film. This is Lauren Barnett, and you are part of the London Horror Movie Club.